You guys have heroes, right? Everybody's got a hero, right? I mean, everybody, right? Somebody. Somebody. Somebody's a hero, right? I mean, heroes, right? This is kind of what we do, right? I mean, there's always somebody, right, in our life that we look up to and, you know, respect and maybe we want to be like them or maybe we just, you know, it doesn't matter about being like them. We just think we like what they do, right? You know, just kind of amazed by what they can accomplish and like, that eh, is just a great just perspective or a great, you know, ability that they have, right? We, we have heroes and it changes over time, right? We start with Maybe, you know, when we're kids, you know, different heroes. And then as we get older, there's other heroes that kind of begin to take place, you know. And, and, and as our life changes, as we mature, we come to a greater sense of heroes and people that in our life that we want to emulate or be like or people in our life who just influence us. So I certainly have had plenty of heroes in my life. But when I was a kid, one of my first heroes, one of the first people that really had an influence in my life was um, a guy named Kenny Rogers. <clears throat> this is uh, what I remember him looking like when I was a kid. He, I don't think, looks like this anymore. I'm not even sure if, is he alive still? I, I don't know. <laughs> He's pretty old now if he is still alive. But Kenny Rogers, yeah, when I was a kid, Kenny Rogers was a big deal for me. Um, he, you know, my mom, uh, she, she's a great woman, uh, a woman who, you know, brought me to church every week, made sure that I found Jesus at an early age and all of that, so give her main, uh, big props for all that she has done and influenced in my life, uh, and I will give her props as well for making Kenny Rogers a big part of my childhood as well. See, my mom was, she was a cleaner. Uh, she loved to have a clean house, still does, uh, enjoy having her come to my house occasionally because she does clean. Uh, the house. Not that my wife doesn't. She does a great job. <laughs> just to clarify. Uh, just like, just stepped off the stage right there. It's all of a sudden. Everything was going great, and then boom, face plant. Anyway, uh, my mom was a cleaner, and so when I grew up, it's like Saturday mornings were her time to clean. And so she usually started pretty early, and because she didn't want her son to get too much sleep, right? Because I was already a beautiful child. Uh, anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you, appreciate it. Anyway, so no, she would like start cleaning like at 8 o'clock in the morning, right? And, and she would start vacuuming or whatever, and, and the door of my bedroom was never an obstacle for her. She just would open it and just vacuum right around me while I'm laying in bed, right? So, but if uh, I didn't get woken up by the vacuum, I would get woken up by Kenny Rogers, because she would blare Kenny Rogers when she was cleaning, right? And I mean... Who doesn't like Kenny Rogers, right? I mean, he's got some great stuff. I mean, just the gambler alone, right? I mean, you got to know when to hold him. You got to know when to fold him. You know, you got to know when to walk away, and you've got to know when to run. I mean, this is, this preaches, right? This preaches. This is good. <clears throat> so Kenny Rogers big influence in my life when I was a kid. Then, I, I, as I got a little bit older and, and began to get exposed to another important part of my life, I, I found a new, uh, a new hero in my life, and, and that was a guy named Phil Mickelson. So, if you don't know, Phil Mickelson is a, Mickelson is a pro golfer, okay? And I love golf, and, uh, and when I was in middle school, high school years, I started to learn the game, and this guy was kind of at the peak of his career. Things were going great and had a good time. Now, this guy, I mean, he looks great in green, doesn't he? I mean, look at that. He's got that 
Jacket, you know what the green jacket is, right? I hope you know what green jacket Come on, please tell me, right? Masters, right? April, okay, come on. All right, so he looks good in green, right? I, anyway, so this guy was kind of my, you know, hero in golf. Like, I mean, I just loved the way he played golf, and he was fighting with Tiger Woods all the time, I mean, trying to slay that Tiger, right, you know? And Tiger Woods, he's a horrible guy, but Phil, I mean, he's a family guy, great guy. I mean, he's amazing, right? Great golfer, and, and, and one of the things that I really liked about Phil was that he was he was just, he was always going. Like, I mean, he would never play it safe. You know, the commentators would tell him, oh, yeah, well, you've got a five-stroke lead. You probably should just take out a three-wood and put this down in the middle. No, he's got the driver out. Let's do it again, right? And I love that because it's dangerous to play safe in golf. I mean, it is, right? Right, Steve? It's dangerous to play safe in golf because you, you know, hit a different shot than you normally would, and it can be create cost. So I just grabbed onto that, and that is how I play golf. It's like, safe? What is safe? No, we're going for it every time. Anyway, so Phil Mickelson was the next big uh, influencer in my life. And then uh, most recently, I, you know, the Lord, as I grew and matured and got to know, you know, uh, kind of who God had made me to be, and find out what were the real important things in life. There was one final guy that continues to have a huge influence in my life and continue to be a hero of mine, and that is, of course, Russell Wilson. <clears throat> um, I mean, look at him. I mean, are those guns legal, right? I mean, look at this guy, right? I mean, awesome, right? A great court. What? Oh, no, he's amazing. I mean, he's so awesome. I, mean, I just love the way he plays football. I love just his personality and who he is off the field as well. I mean, just a great guy. I mean, uh, I made my wife buy a jersey that says three on it. You know, I didn't want to wear it because I'm not worthy. But to have her, <laughs> but to have her wear it and I can see her, I was like, it's, look, it's Russell Wilson, honey. And she's like, where? No, you're wearing the jersey. So I was so excited, man. It's great. So Russell Wilson is amazing, and, and one of the amazing things about heroes is, is the influence that they have on us, right? They, 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 they change us, right? They, they make us view things maybe differently, and they, and they uh, you know, oftentimes it's a positive influence, hopefully. Um, but one of the things as well, the negatives of a hero is what we do with our heroes, right? Because oftentimes we, we have this tendency to exaggerate kind of who they are and what they've done. I mean, like Russell Wilson. I mean, he is the best quarterback of all time. I mean, it's, it, it really, yeah. I mean, it's, he's changed. He's transformed the way that the quarterback position is played. I mean, this guy is just, I mean, he does things with the football no one else can do. It's just amazing, all right? I mean, it's just, this is Russell Wilson. <laughs> exactly. See, there you go. Also, we have a tendency to maybe add some attributes to those that are our heroes. And for instance, I mean, Russell Wilson, I mean, we've had some struggles with kickers the last couple years, but I don't know why we keep getting more kickers. I mean, just let Russell Wilson do it. I mean, he's got a great arm. He's got to have a great leg. I mean, look at he's an athlete, right? I'm sure he could kick a 50-yard field goal with no problem. So why are we spending all this money on kickers, right? I mean, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Finally, our tendency is to maybe be a bit critical of the competitors, uh, those who are competing against our heroes, you know, like, for instance, Tom Brady, who is just a horrible quarterback. I mean, that guy just needs to retire. I mean, he's older than me, I think, man, and I'm old, right? I mean, look at me, right? Okay, don't look at me. But anyway, yeah, it's, oh, sorry. You're super young, Jackie, super young. Second child, I notice that every week. <laughs> anyway, so we, we tend to exaggerate the importance of those of our, who are our heroes, we tend to add attributes and then we tend to become critical of others, well, that are in comp competition of our hero. Well, the First Corinthians church 
church in Corinth certainly had some heroes. So the passage we're looking at today is 1 Corinthians chapter, 10, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. So I don't have it on the screen. If you would like to follow along in your Bibles, you can do that. Or if you have a Bible app, you can plug in there as well. But I will read it to you. So here it is, starting with verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me, tattletale, Chloe, right? I mean, seriously, have told me, informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but on that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, I mentioned last week that the, uh, the church in Corinth had numerous Christian evangelists who kind of showed up in their city to share the love of Christ with them. And the result of these numerous evangelists coming into town actually created some sense of heroism in the church. I mean, it makes sense, right? We all tend to kind of elevate that person who led us to Christ the first time, right? I mean, they become somebody that we really respect and we look up to as a Christian and as a human being, right? And, And the same thing was happening here in the Corinthian church. And just like we do in our own hero worship today, they started to exaggerate the teachings of their heroes. And they began to add some details to the teaching of their heroes. And they also became critical of the other heroes or the other leaders that were in competition to their hero. The three heroes that we see, or there's actually four listed, but the three actual human beings who were listed as heroes were Paul, of course, Apollos, and Peter, which is Cephas, as as it's written in in your Bibles. This reality of hero worship, this reality of exaggeration, of addition, and of criticalness of our heroes is something that the Corinthian church dealt with, but it's not just something that they deal with, because we certainly deal with it today in our church, in Trinity Alliance, and in the church as a whole, in the community around us. It is something that we just kind of fall into pretty easily for some reason. And so this morning, I want to, to, to kind of dive into these different heroes that the church in Corinth had and, and focus in on what, uh, the, what they were focused on and how the Corinthian church had added some teaching and exaggerated their teaching. And then, of course, the more important part is what does that mean for us and how do we do the same thing in our church? And so we'll start with Paul. We all know that Paul was a great evangelist, he was a great missionary, and that he had a message of grace. Everywhere he went, this was the message that he sought to bring. 
And he even went to battle with Peter over this concept of grace, that, that we don't have to do anything to receive the love of Christ, that we don't have to do anything to receive salvation, but that salvation is offered to us by grace. And that we don't have to follow the Old Testament law, that we don't have to, to bow to that, but that we just need to have the grace of Jesus. Those who follow Paul in Corinth took his teaching and his focus on grace and they began to extrapolate it out a bit and exaggerate it a bit and make some additions of their own. And so... They begin to have a belief that Christianity is actually a license for freedom and sin. That, that they could, you know, just go on sinning because it didn't matter anymore. That the more that they sinned, actually, the grace would abound, right? The very thing that actually Paul preaches against in Romans, right? But, but Paul didn't agree with this. He didn't believe this. He believed in grace, certainly, but... This was the people who were following Paul that began to take his teachings and kind of just extrapolate it out further. And, well, I like this grace concept, and so I'm going to keep going with it. And we certainly see this same result in our churches today. There are many in churches today that have an extreme focus on grace. People who have extrapolated out that concept of grace have added some teaching to it. Where they begin to downplay sin and they begin to reinterpret all of Scripture through the lens of grace. There are some leaders of this movement, contemporary leaders of this movement, and this is not the fault of these leaders. These leaders do not teach these extreme perspectives necessarily. But it's just people that we as human beings today in churches across the world who are focused on grace, we, we want to grab a couple of these people and these are the people that we focus on and they become our heroes. We would say today, I follow Brennan Manning or I follow Rob Bell. The problem with this focus on grace as well as all of the other focuses that we'll look at today is that these extreme focuses on one aspect of God leads to division. Divisions in the church, local church within, but also divisions of churches splitting from each other. I mean, we have denominations today that are only focused on grace or have this extreme focus on grace. Whole churches that everybody there believes the same thing about grace. And that grace is the main issue and all, it's all about grace. But we also have, again, inside the church, people who have these perspectives and they get critical of others that don't have their perspective. Critical of other teachers that are out there that may teach that, you know, actually, no, you need to actually live rightly, that you need to strive to live in righteousness, not just accept Christ's righteousness, but that you need to try to live, you know, like you would in heaven. And they get criticized and they attack those type of leaders and those people that live that way. Ultimately, if a person or a church continues down this path of extreme grace, they will come to a point of what is probably considered, well, it is considered a heretical perspective of grace, which is basically universalism. That there is no hell. That, you know, God loves us, so we're all in. So it doesn't really matter what you do or what you believe or whatever. You just, you just need to say, yeah, I like Jesus. However, 
This concept and perspective of truth is a foundational truth to Christianity. It, it, it is true grace, right? It is true that we need grace. It is true that we have no chance, we have no hope of the future without grace. Grace is our, our, our ticket to eternity. Grace is our ticket to a relationship with God. We can't get there on our own. There's nothing within us. doesn't matter how righteous we live. We will never be perfect. And if we're never perfect, we can never enter a relationship with God and spend eternity with him. We need grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Next, there was those who follow Apollos. Now, Apollos was from Egypt, and he had an emphasis on theology. Egypt at the time in the Christian world was kind of this hotbed for philosophy and intellectual training and, and, and theology. And so when Apollos came to Corinth, he, had, he preached a gospel that was focused on like apologetics and like a, philosoph a philosophy of Christianity. It made sense. It was logical. It was something that would reach out to those who were intelligent, intellectually minded in, in, the current, in the city of Corinth. And so there were people that kind of grabbed onto that, that came to Christ because of that logical teaching. And they were in the Corinthian church. And they kind of began to add and exaggerate the teachings of Apollos to the point where they began to believe that Christianity is simply a philosophy to learn. That they took theology to the extreme and that everything was all about theology. That we must understand God correctly. And that sanctification came through right thinking about God and not through anything else that they were focused on Bible study and training and education. We certainly have people in our church today, both in TAC and in our church world, that have an extreme focus on theology, where they have a perspective that it's all about our knowledge of God. That's what salvation is. That it's about theological training, and that theological training and development of our mind is how we determine whether or not we're sanctified or not. And there are certainly some leaders of that movement, again, not because they are teaching this extreme perspective, but because they are teachers that this extreme perspective grabs onto. People that would say, I follow N.T. Wright, or I follow Ravi Zacharias. Once again, the, the problem here with this extreme focus on theology and intelligence is that it leads to division. It, it's dividing our church be, because we have people within who are so focused on theology that that's all it is about. And when they hear someone say something about God that they think is wrong, that they've got to criticize. They've, they've got to jump on that because that's a problem. You can't have those wrong perspectives of God around here. We've got to nip that in the bud and get, it, get rid of it. We even have entire churches that have separated from all others and so that the whole church is just focused on theology and that's what you do. That's why we go to that church because I really like this church because it's really strong in theology or whatever it may be. And that, that, that is, we're totally separate again. That this church is all about, this particular church may be all about theology. They become critical of those 
who have different perspectives, become critical of those who don't believe the way they do. And ultimately, if we allow this extreme focus on theology to continue to extrapolate out, we find a heresy where people begin to say, this is the only one true church. That you have to be a part of this church if you're going to be a Christian. That it's our perspective of God that is the only right one. And so if you don't agree with us, well then you're not a Christian. <laughs> but again, the foundation of intelligence and theology is something that we need. We need truth. We need to understand who God is. He has revealed himself to us in his word, and we need to know this, know what he has communicated about himself to us. You know, it's the amazing thing about the Bible is that we could read the same verses over and over and over again and our whole life and never exhaust what God can teach us through that verse. I don't understand how it works, but it's true. God reveals himself to us through his word, and we need to know him how he's revealed himself. We have to continue to search the scriptures, to seek to know who this God is, who he made us to be, and what is the answers for this world that we live in. Certainly, 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about the fact that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, right? I mean, this Bible is, we need to be in it. This is important for us. God's given it to us as a tool to help us. And also, God has given us the example of the Berean church. Now in Acts 17, verse 11, now the Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. We have a responsibility to understand and to know if this is true and what is true. And when the pastor gets up front and begins to preach from the, from the Bible, that we would seek it as well. Is what the pastor said true? Does it match up with God's word? We need God's word. We need the Bible. We need theology. We need to understand who God is. This is part of being a Christian. The next hero would be uh, those who follow Peter. Now, Peter never visited Corinth, the Corinthian church, as far as we can tell, but certainly his teaching would have impacted this church, and obviously it did because he's listed here. And we know from Peter, the great pastor of the Jerusalem church, that he, was, uh, he emphasized, in a sense, obedience. That he, he thought it was important that we live righteously, that certainly he believed in grace and that we were saved by grace, but he also believed that we had a role to play in living out righteously after that. He even got in a bit of a fight with Paul. Remember that? We talked about Paul a minute ago. But the Paul and Peter were in this struggle about, okay, once they become a Christian, do they have to follow the law, the Old Testament law? And Paul's like, no way. Peter's like, yes way. And then God got a hold of Peter and said, oh, let me show you a little dream that I got. Right? And, and so he changed Peter's perspective. But Peter still was a man who was focused on the realities that we need to live in righteousness. Those who followed Peter, however, in the Corinthian church began to extrapolate out and exaggerate and add some things to his teaching to the point where Christianity was per perceived as a morality to be obeyed. They began to exalt obedience above everything else. So that obedience was the main focus, that serving God correctly 
was the goal, that sanctification was right living, that when you were doing the right things at the right times, then you were sanctified. Certainly we have some in our church today who have this same extreme focus on obedience, where they seek to dive into Scripture in order to try to remove the gray areas. You know, you know they just, they're just not happy with gray areas. I mean, God has a word for us on every situation in life. And so even though God may not directly talk about it in a word in the Bible, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put together all these different principles and all these different things and different verses, and I'm going to kind of morph them or whatever in order to figure out what to do in this spot because God has an answer for every situation. There are no gray areas. Correct religious service is what sanctification is. Behavior modification is what sanctification is all about. Some of the leaders in this movement, again, not because they teach this, but because they are grabbed onto by people who believe in this extreme perspective of obedience, are those who would say that I follow John Piper, or I follow John MacArthur. Again, just as in the other two, the, the extreme result of focusing on obedience above all else is divisions in the church. We begin to focus around us and we just begin to judge people by their behavior and their behavior only. And we begin to classify people, you know, the righteous and the unrighteous in the church. Begin to, you know, really focus on those bad behaviors and those sins to the, exen- to the point where we begin to, to destroy relationships. And we have entire churches that are totally focused on obedience. An extreme perspective. Criticize those who believe other things or would ever talk about grace too much. I mean, yeah, grace is a thing, but careful now. Don't, go, don't take it too far. And the resa- reality is that if this extreme approach to obedience continues to work its way out, eventually it'll lead to a heresy as well, and the heresy is works salvation. That God loves us because of what we've done, because of what we do. That our relationship with him is dependent on our own behaviors. Now again, don't get me wrong, this is an important reality. This is an important and foundational truth, obedience. And Jesus is calling us to obedience. I mean, this is, this is what we need to do as Christians when we, when we give our life to Christ. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we've given our life to him, and so we need to live for him. That, that we allow him to dictate what we do and where we go and what we say and how we live. That we would desire to show our love to him through obedience. That, that we want to do his will, that we want to follow him wherever he leads. This is the life of a Christian. This is what we are living for. is not our way to salvation, but it's what we live for as a Christian, that we would have the privilege of doing right things for Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9.27, here's Paul's dealing with this struggle with his sinful nature, and he says, listen to how he treats himself. Listen to what he does to himself. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body. I beat my body, other translations have, and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself 
will not be disqualified from the prize. He's saying that obedience is so important that we need to discipline ourselves. We shouldn't just let our sinful nature run amok, but that we should try to control it and and get it under control so that we can live righteously, that we would discipline our lives to be able to change our behaviors, to change the way we think, to change the way we speak. Obedience is a foundational truth of being a Christian. Finally, this fourth group was those who follow Christ. And this is kind of the group that, you know, they would, you know, look at the other groups and they were going, oh, oh, you guys are just so unspiritual. I mean, I can't believe that you're following man. I mean, we follow Christ here. You know, I mean, uh, kind of this, this is kind of the perspective that's coming across here. That, that they are more spiritual than all the others because they only follow Christ. We only do what Christ tells us to do. We don't do these, you know, other things. We're not worried about what Paul said or Apollos said or Peter said. We're worried about what Christ is saying and what Christ is saying today. So these are the people who, who began to extrapolate and add to the message of Christ even to the point where it became all about supernatural gifting. And that Christianity was basically just believing, or just getting goodies from God, receiving blessings. That, that they focused on spiritual gifts above all else. And that it was the manifestation of the Spirit in their life that determined their Christianity. And they, they thought that you must have experiences with God, emotional and personal experiences with God. And that sanctification was about receiving the greater gifts. We certainly have people in our world and in our church today who have this extreme focus on gifting. That they focus and believe that receiving and using spiritual gifts is what Christianity is all about. That, that, that God wants to bless us so much and that we just have to ask. And if we would just ask, we would receive so much more. That intimacy with God and gifting is what determines whether we're sanctified. Some of the leaders of this movement, again, not because of their own teaching, but because of what those who are in this area and this focus tend to grab onto, are those who, say that, who would say that I follow Ruth Haley Barton. Or I follow Bill Johnson a little closer to home. Again, like the others, the extreme result of over-focus on spiritual gifts and the blessings of God is division in the church. We get divided within our doors here, within our church, because people think that, well, you know, I've got this spiritual gift and you don't, so that means you don't know, you're not as close to Jesus as I am. I mean, if you only just spent more time in prayer, then you could have what I have. If you just ask Jesus, if you just, you know, you're not healed, you know, you should be healed. And if you just would pray a little bit more, if you had a little bit more faith, then you'd be healed. Or if you'd, you know, whatever, right? And so we get these divisions within the church, but even to the point, again, where we have churches, total churches and a complete church and, and even denominations that are focused solely on spiritual gifts. That, that's the biggest thing. That's the most important piece. And if we extrapolate and allow this to continue to just kind of play its course and run its, run its, run its course without being checked, there's a heresy at the end of it. And the heresy is the health and wealth gospel. But again, the blessings and the gifts of God 
are a foundational truth that we need to understand and embrace. There is a reality that this God who created us, who is so separate from us, still desires to be close to us. He is a God who is beyond us, but he's a God who is within us. We have a God who wants this intimate, personal relationship with us, that he wants to gift us with his power. He wants to empower us to do his work. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who we worship. This is the God who is God of all. He's he's the one who saved us. And he wants to care for us. He wants to bless us. He wants to empower us. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So all of these different emphases, those who follow Paul, overemphasis on grace. Those who follow Apollos, overemphasis on theology. Those who follow Peter, overemphasis on righteousness. And those who follow Christ, overemphasis on spiritual gifts and blessings. What do we do with all of this? What's, Peter's, what's Paul's teaching? And it's simply found here in 1 Corinthians 1.13. I read it already, but I'll read it again. He simply says this. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Right? He just asked him three questions, right? And he says, do, do you get what's going on here? He says, is Christ divided? Did Paul die for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And all, of course, the answers to all of those questions is no. But what does he mean by this? First of all, is Christ divided? What does he mean? The answer is no, which means that Christ is not divided. That means that Christ is indivisible. It means that we are all a part of the body of Christ. Thus, we are all one. You can't separate him and break him out into a bunch of different pieces. He is one. And the, here's the reality, is that, he believe, that all of these different perspectives that we have about Christ are true. But you can't just take one of them by themselves and separate from everybody else. You need all of the truths in order to fully understand who God is and to understand who Jesus is and to have a relationship with Jesus. You need all of it. You can't just break them out into different groups. As a church, we are not, we have too many times where we want to get into our own little grouping of people that all have the same perspective of Jesus so that we will never be challenged and we can feel good about ourselves. But that is just not the way that Jesus designed it. He designed his church to be diverse. He designed it to have every perspective included. It is not about having a universal church that includes all of those emphases. It's about having a local church, an individual church that has all of those emphases. May we be a church that doesn't look around and criticize people that have different emphases about who Jesus is, but instead that we would go up to them and say, I need to learn your perspective of Jesus because you know him just as well as I do, but just in a different way. We need, to, we need to bind together, to become united together, to respect one another, respect each other's perspectives, and not just think, oh, because they don't believe the way I do, that somehow they're a lesser Christian. 
The reality is that some people who are just a baby Christian, just became a Christian today, but probably could teach us a whole lot about what it means to be a believer of Jesus. Every one of us has a unique, unique perspective, and we need it all. We need all of Jesus, not just a portion of him. Next, Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? No. The answer is no, right? I mean, Paul's alive. He's writing this letter. He's not dead yet, right? So, no, he was not crucified. Well, maybe he rose from the dead too, right? I guess you could say that. But anyway, no, it's not Paul who died for you. It was who? Jesus who died for them. It is not our hero who has died for us. It is not our dogma or our doctrine or our theology or our perspective that has died for us. It is Jesus who died for us. We so often exalt our perspective of Jesus above Jesus. And we think we don't even want to even consider what Jesus would call us to do that would be different than our doctrine or our theology or our perspective. Because, no, 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 Jesus, you have to bow to my doctrine. We put God in a box and say, no, no, you've got to do it the way I understand you to do it. Instead of saying, okay, Jesus, I don't understand, but you're calling me to do this and just do it. So often we miss out on some of the blessings of Jesus simply because he's asking us to take a step out of our doctrinal box. It is Jesus who died for us. We are all dependent on Jesus, and without him, we have no hope. Even if you don't have a doctrine, even if you don't have a perspective, even if you don't have a church, you will die without Jesus. You'll be fine without all the rest, but you need Jesus. We all do. Finally, Paul says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, the answer is no. Who were they baptized in the name of? Jesus, right? They're baptized in the name. And what does this mean? The idea of being baptized into the name of means that you are sacrificing yourself for them. The act of a burial and a resurrection into Christ, that we are one with Christ, that we are saying, Jesus, I am no longer my own. I am now yours. That Jesus owns us. When we get baptized, we are saying, Lord, I'm surrendering my life, and when I rise from the dead, when I rise from this water, I am going to be yours completely and fully. You are my God. You are my Lord. You tell me what to do and where to go, what to say, and I'll do it. This is what it means. We are owned by Jesus. If we are owned by Jesus, then he is our leader, not our doctrine, not our dogma, not our church, not our church leaders. Jesus is our leader. Jesus is the one who determines our direction, the direction of our life. So Paul's answer to the Corinthians' hero worship was said, hey, it's Jesus. Jesus isn't divided, so why are you divided? Would you stop bickering about these issues and theologies? It's okay to have a debate about it, but don't criticize each other. Don't separate over it. Don't allow it to destroy your connection to them. It's Jesus who was the one who died for you. Give your life up for him. Don't give up your life for your doctrine. It was Jesus who you were baptized into. Allow him to be the leader of you, not your doctrine or your dogma. Allow him to be the one who directs your steps. And that message is for us as well as as Christians today. That we would keep these truths in mind because these realities separate us even today. And as the worship team comes forward, just one last point 
and more of not really a point, but a calling to us as a church. A calling that I think comes from Paul in this passage, but also I think a call that comes from God, and, and if you will, maybe a call from me this morning as well. First of all, to understand that God is calling us to unity in diversity. He's calling us to unity with diversity. He's not calling us all to be the same. We don't have to all have the same perspective. We don't all have to have the same experiences with God. He's not calling us even to believe the same things. He is calling us to diversity and unity. He's calling us to be different but he's also calling us to embrace diversity. If they're different than you, that's okay. If they have a different perspective than you, that's really cool. God just brought them into your life so that you can learn something new about God. And he's calling us to be united together as one body. May Trinity Alliance Church not be a church that becomes singularly focused with only one emphasis on Jesus. May we be a church that incorporates all the different perspectives, the true perspectives of who Jesus is. May we embrace those different perspectives. May we be able to have those debates among one another and do it in love. May we be able, may we be able to be humble enough to learn from somebody who has a different perspective than we do about Jesus because Jesus is bigger than we can ever fully understand. And so let's try to get as much as we can every person that God brings into this church, every new person that walks through the door. The reason that I love to meet new people and the reason that many of you probably do too is because they have a unique perspective of who Jesus is. And by me getting to know their story, I am able to expand my perspective of who Jesus is. That's what we want. More of Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and continue to worship together.